Welcome. We've got Jen Ramston with us today, Jersey girl, recovery advocate, woman in long-term recovery, almost eight years. And now we can add business owner. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for what coming. an introduction. Thanks for coming to kick it with me today. Of course. I can never say no to you, Melissa. You know I adore you. Well, thank you for coming. Really, it's special to have you. All the way from Costa Mesa to Costa Mesa, right? <laughs> um, anyway, well, thanks for coming today. I really appreciate it. Um, let's get right into it. How did a girl like you end up in a place like this? <laughs> Let's start there. How did a girl like you, because you got, you, you got sober young. I mean, that, you know, that, that's not everybody's story, coming up on eight years. I, I did get sober young. It's honestly crazy to think and reflect on. Uh, I was 23 when I went to treatment. I turned 24 in my aftercare program. And this journey was not one that I really expected. And I... Even being a young person, you're like, okay, I know that my life can't keep going on the way that it is when you're using, but I didn't know what was next. I didn't have any role models of what a life looked like in recovery, especially as a young woman. I just thought, okay, I'm going to go to treatment. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop using drugs. What's the point from there on? But I couldn't keep doing it, but then I didn't know what to expect. I thought, okay, my life is going to be over. Well, okay, so you talked about aftercare. You went to aftercare. What what even led you to treatment? I mean, much less aftercare, because I'm, I'm sure none of this was an easy road. So what, what even led you to get to treatment? Well, it's so interesting. Um, navigating the treatment world is not easy as an uninformed person. I remember a year or two before going to treatment, we were calling my insurance, trying to get recommendations. I don't think people that don't have a drinking or using problem do that. No, no they don't, <laughs> don't, that's not, that's not normal. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go to treatment for 30 days, I'm gonna be okay, then everything will go back to normal, right? I'll be able to manage life. Um, but where I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, um, you know, people go to treatment, it's kind of hush-hush. Somebody in my family had been to treatment prior to me, so my family called that place that they trusted. It's a place where a lot of families in my area went, but the stigma is very real. So again, like I said, it was very hush-hush. You keep it on the down low. You don't really tell people what's going on. Especially uh girl right especially it's just it's kind of unexpected um now were you in college at this point are you in high school what's what's going um, on so i well it's interesting i was supposed to have graduated college but i was just a semester shy okay so i was still in the i was in miami at the time i grew up in new jersey i was going to the university of miami i had this one semester left that i just kept saying oh man i'm gonna finish it i'm gonna do it i walked at graduation and I couldn't get my life together enough to show up and do the things that I needed to do despite my best efforts. Mm -hmm. It was this internal battle, like I know I'm capable and I need to do this and this was important to me. But then it was like that addict voice in my head was like, okay, we need to, we need to feed this beast. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like a compulsion where everything else in my life just went to the wayside. Um, but I kind of reached this bottom and I had this moment of clarity, I guess you could call it. I don't really remember, but I, I called my dad one day 
and I just surrendered and I was like, I've tried to do this on my own so many times. I can't do it, I need help. I didn't mm -hmm. have the heart to tell my dad exactly what I was doing because I just didn't want to break his heart completely and mm -hmm. have him worry even more. Because when you hear that your daughter is, you know, shooting up heroin and cocaine and is an IV drug user, it's something that I didn't expect to happen to me. Uh. And I don't think that my dad or family members would be able to like process that information right away. Yeah. So I was still yeah. trying to shield them from the reality. <laughs> Um, so my dad called me. He's like, oh, geez, Jen. But they had, they knew something, but I tried to shield them. The distance made it a lot easier to keep yes, that facade. Yes. And being a young woman, I got to fly under the radar for a long time because nobody expects a quote-unquote girl like me to be doing what I was doing. And that's part of the reason I'm grateful to talk to you is to, mm -hmm. to kind of break that stigma because... I don't know. I just thought that an addict was somebody who was like homeless, living out of their car, like the things that we kind of associate with negatively. But what I've learned in recovery is we can look like a lot of different things and come in a lot of different packages that That's you wouldn't right. quite expect. That's right. Um, and so my next step was my dad called somebody and was like, where can I send my daughter? I don't know what to do. It's a tough process to navigate. Like, how do you know how to get a loved one? into treatment or into care and how do you know that's good care that's right and especially there's a small narrow window as they say when you're willing mm -hmm. it's like all the stars align right mm -hmm. and for me i was just so crushed i would wake up every day and i just was would be kind of upset that i had to go through this cycle again i had no meaning no purpose no friends uh, i was just a shell of the person I am now and the person that I used to be. And it's like I was this person that had so much potential, but I had stopped growing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And recovery gave me that chance to kind of initially come back to myself mm -hmm. and then grow from there and become all these wonderful things that you introduced me <laughs> as. <laughs> and the gym we know and love. Yeah. Uh -huh. And um, I can be somebody that I'm proud to be today, which is something I could not say for a really long time. And I remember when I had that realization, I was like, wow, I can live with myself? What a concept. What a con so can you? So I'm imagining that you didn't go to college and, and wake up a drug addict one day. So was this something that like you can think back like early memories and maybe there were some signs there early on? Oh, yes. Uh, it didn't start in college for me. Mm -hmm. It absolutely started in high school. Um, I think being a teenager, there's a lot of stressors that we deal with, a lot of big emotions, and I think at the time we don't know really how else to cope. Mm -hmm. So I was very angry, very self-destructive, and I remember I started drinking. I tried alcohol the first summer before going to high school, and it wasn't this huge aha moment they talk about, but for mm -hmm. me I was like, this is kind of nice, and it's not as bad as everybody made it out to seem. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the progression went. Uh, you know those D.A.R.E. programs where they scare you into thinking everything's <laughs> yes, bad? Yes. But for me, it was like, okay, I got a little taste of something, and I was like, I dispelled all the fear. Mm -hmm. I was like, 
I think they were wrong about this. This might actually be kind of nice. Right, right. (laughs) And it wasn't really peer pressure per se, but I was always in this pursuit to kind of alter how I felt inside. So when those opportunities kept presenting itself, so I would try, you know, Adderall, I would take Xanax and then turn to harder drugs. And I started doing cocaine when I was like 16. I was drinking on weeknights, drinking before I would go to school and spike my drink and not tell anybody. I mm. almost got kicked off my lacrosse team because I was drunk or hungover, maybe still drunk from right. the night before. Uh-huh. But I was so high functioning. And again, it's like as a girl, young girl, they don't expect you to be having these problems and nobody ever talked to you about it. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, that's, I think of the word chameleon, right? And you show what you want to show and you hide what you need to hide, right? And um, yeah, so it's it's that great cover-up. And, and I think a lot of us, some of us, have people around us to make sure that, you know, help us show the world what they want want to show, what they want us to see or what, uh, I'm probably not saying that correctly, but you know what I mean. Um, So, um, okay, so you obviously were put together enough and and excelled enough to get into University of Miami. I mean, you, I mean, that's, that's no easy feat coming from New Jersey, right? Yeah, it was a pretty tough school to get into, I think still at the time. Yeah. I was an honor student. I was captain of the lacrosse team. I was on a nationally ranked soccer team, although I quit my senior year. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I had over a 4.0 and I was still doing all these things. I just keep thinking, hiding in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I was also like self-harming, self-medicating. And I mean, I was in therapy too, but I mean, at that age, I was just, how much was I really sharing? I remember one time they made a suggestion for me to go to the drug and alcohol counselor down the down the hallway, and I was like, no, absolutely not. No. I don't need that. Right, <laughs> right. You're not able to be honest with yourself, much less somebody else. Well, in high school, too, I didn't think that I was old enough to have a problem. That didn't even cross my field of awareness. But now, in retrospect, I'm like like so much could have been done or changed or if I was intervened on earlier, Mm -hmm. if I was seen for what things really were. Um, And that's part of why I do some of the advocacy work that I do. Right. Yeah. So, so one recovery, that's a big part of, you've gotten really involved with one recovery and Lynn Peterson and her program. And so you see high school students all the time and get to work with them. So tell me about that and some parallels and what you see and how maybe that could have helped you. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I've volunteered with this nonprofit organization that brings early intervention through human connection into local high schools. We also do uh, parent groups, parent education groups, mm-hmm. and community education groups, such as on the dangers of vaping or you know, marijuana use these days. But it's just, I love working with teens and adolescents because I think they're still at this stage where they're more malleable and open to you know receiving help and the things that we employ when they're younger perhaps can alter the course of their life and maybe you know if things do get worse down the line they do know how to ask for help they know how to vocalize their feelings they're 
we give them a place to be seen and heard and talk about life struggles and whether that is substance use or is it mental health. It's just this was all the stuff that I was bottling up for so long because I didn't feel that it was appropriate or safe to share. And I wonder, like, if I had that, maybe I would have been receptive, maybe I wouldn't have, but I love working with them, seeing the light come on in their eyes and seeing them flourish in their life in a way that perhaps I could have done as well. Well, I love that word connection. I, I think that especially at that vulnerable age, that high school where you don't feel safe, I think that's a big one. You know, you don't feel safe going to parents. A lot of parents, denial is huge. I don't, it's nobody's fault, but you don't want to think that your kid's struggling or that that's happening, right? And, and it's nobody's fault. It's just reality but connection human connection and being able to talk candidly and freely and to know that to maybe I don't know if normalize if that's is that the right word or to be accepted be able to have a safe space to talk about it is that I remember that that was so absolutely freeing for me because when I was using I would try to use socially accept in a socially acceptable way mm -hmm. when I'd go to parties, drinking, maybe just doing a little bit of blow, <laughs> like a lady. <laughs> um, and then I'd go home, and then I would really hit the bottle, and then I would use how I really wanted to use and mm -hmm. get completely obliterated. But it was like I was still so conscious about my appearance. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I went to treatment, it felt so paradoxically freeing because I was in this place where I had more rules than I'd ever had in my life. Yeah, the thing you thought you were always running from. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, I love being a little rebel, mm -hmm. bucking against the system. Yeah. But in treatment, I could talk openly and honestly about what was really going on. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I felt so understood by a group of my peers, mostly. The counselors helped so much as well but I remember I felt so much less alone and the secrets that I was hiding like they no longer felt like this heavy burden mm -hmm. and I always you know was this hyper independent type of person I can do it all on my own until I finally made that call to my dad and I remember I could just like breathe finally right mm -hmm. and I allowed myself to be taken care of but also put that work in to mm. treatment in order to get better and to share that burden with other people it's uh, I don't know it's tough to even put words to it I made friends with people that I would probably never cross paths with in my day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. and I felt as though I had a stronger connection with them than I did like people that I'd known for 10 years oh absolutely it's crazy like just that one sometimes just that one interaction just just you know, no, no better word than connection, that feeling of, you know, me too. Mm -hmm. Just that, just that feeling like, oh God, I'm not alone. And I wasn't too much either. Cause if you tell certain people the things that you're doing, mm -hmm. their eyes might like, like fly out of their head. But when you tell somebody who's been through similar experiences, it's almost like anything isn't too much. And yeah. we can even laugh about it. That's right. Yeah. Some of the laughter, it is. It is, um, yeah, it's like music. It is. Speaking of music, this has not been, um, this wasn't, it may have felt like a death sentence Initially, early on. Yes. Early on, but this has not been boring, right? 
anything but. You love music, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So that's what I thought when I was a young person in recovery. Okay, where do I go from here? I'm going to be sober. I'm going to have no life, especially mm-hmm. coming from a city like Miami where I thought everybody's lives revolved around partying, drinking, going out. I was like, okay, I can't do that anymore. But once I had you know, enough time and my, my legs under me enough in recovery, I began to explore those interests to see, okay, do I still enjoy going to music and festivals? And I've learned I still do. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I can go anywhere as long as I have a reason. And I've actually felt a really amazing recovery community that also goes to music festivals. Um, and so I have other people that are in similar situations. But I love just being like connected, dancing, being covered in glitter. <laughs> Glitter. Oh, my God. Um, But being young in recovery, it isn't a death sentence. I actually was able to knock things off of, you know, my bucket list that I couldn't do when I was using, uh, you know, because you couldn't leave too far from the dope dealer because you'd get sick. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want people to know what I was doing. So it kept my world really small. And since being in recovery, I've gotten to travel to countries that I had on my bucket list, such as Italy. I got to go to Greece recently. I go to music festivals. Um, I have quality friends in my life. It's just life has actually gotten really good. Not to say that I haven't dealt with some really tough things as well, but I'm equipped to deal with the highs and lows of today Mm -hmm. without having to alter my state of mind and numb myself to fit the situation anymore. Well, would you say that through this process of, you know, this journey, so to speak, of recovery, would you say that the connections that you've made and people and relationships and all of that, would you say, what would be the one thing that you would say that you, I would say, what are some mistakes that you've made with relationships? Ooh. How much time do you have? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that young people, I've I've seen a lot of people make mistakes in relationships. I agree. Um, So if we're talking from a friendship perspective to begin, Mm -hmm. I remember in my first year of recovery, I had this mentality of kumbaya, we're all in this together, we're Mm -hmm. all working to better ourselves and recover. And then I remember I got screwed over by Mm -hmm. some people and it felt like very much of a high school mentality in some respects. And I quickly learned that just because I'm on this journey and I'm trying to better myself and not engage in old behaviors doesn't mean that everybody that's sober is automatically a good person. So there's a difference between physical sobriety and then active recovery. And I had to learn sometimes the hard way not to automatically assume like, you're sober, you're a good person. You can Uh still be sober and do awful, awful things, but you just don't have an excuse anymore, I don't think, which might make it worse, I don't know. (laughs) But who am I to judge? Right, right, right. But I definitely have had to be discerning in, you know, who I let into my life, because not everybody can have the privilege of access to you. Okay, that's a beautiful way to put it. Uh Yes, and romantic relationships, oh goodness, definitely means a lot of missteps there had you know didn't listen to some of those arbitrary rules they tell you in the program like don't date in the first year Uh and all of that but actually that crazy guy I think led me to you (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, true. So listen, but we learn a lot. We learn a lot. We do, and I think that the work is never done, and I think that we learn a lot about ourselves through relationships. Agree. Which is something you taught me. Listen, I've you know, learned a lot the hard way. I like to learn, you know. I like to learn the hard way. You and me both sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I just think sometimes when, especially, you know, um, this is just because you get sober doesn't doesn't mean, you know, everything gets fixed. I, I always say this is a whole process, and there's so many tools um, that we're awake to receive. You don't have to keep making the same mistakes over and over again, but mistakes are part of it. You know, it's just, I just, I like this. I love, I, maybe I'm jealous of people that get, young, that get sober young and get this opportunity. Maybe that's what it is. I agree. I love the time that I got sober because I feel that I was old enough that I had experienced enough at my young age. There mm-hmm. was, there's a few substances I still haven't tried, but I don't feel the need to be like, oh, I haven't done enough. Right. I feel like I did enough for a few lifetimes. I don't think I left many stones unturned. And I mean, I just remember going to treatment. I just thought like, okay, this is just going to be temporary. Like, this isn't going to be forever. And I'm so privileged, too, that I haven't had to relapse yet. Yeah. Not saying I won't. I say yet just because it could happen. I don't plan on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember in treatment, everyone kept telling me, like, hey, be careful if you go back out, if you do this or do that. Like, just don't use as much. And I remember that was almost fuel to my fire. Mm-hmm. And I was like, screw you guys. I'm going to show you. Why are you saying this to me? I'll be fine. But working in treatment for as long as I have, I do understand now that that is pretty common. But young 23-year-old Jen who turned 24 in treatment and got a sheet cake and glow sticks for her birthday (laughs) could not imagine having this much time or staying sober for this long. I'm grateful, and I wouldn't have changed it for anything. I don't know. My using, you know... It gave my life direction in a weird way because I was able to grasp onto recovery and build a life that I didn't want to escape from anymore. And the reason I've stayed sober this long is because my life now has become so much better than what it was using. It's so much more fulfilling. I have purpose in my career. I have genuine friends and relationships. And and like I said, I get to have these really cool life experiences now that my world is larger when i'm not stuck you know beholden to withdrawals or drugs and all of my secrets and i mean if i could change one thing it would Mm -hmm. be you know taking advantage of school and the friends and all those opportunities that i had that's one thing that i did miss out on i remember joining a sorority because i was like oh i should meet girlfriends this will be really great but i was too high to actually connect yeah and i've definitely tried to remedy those things and learn from those past mistakes and just take it forward into my life and just kind of spread the message that getting sober young is actually quite a gift like you said well so but back to prior to getting sober and connecting with people I, I think that that's prior to being authentic and 
and I think authenticity then leads to purpose because I'll touch on that. So once you get sober and you do start on this, you know, path of finding purpose because do you, I mean, I'm sure it's constant unfolding, but finding purpose. I mean, you spoke about your work with one recovery, but talk about your purpose and helping others. What do you expand on that for me? Absolutely. Um, I think over time, yes, I continue to get closer and closer. But what I find is like the longer I'm sober, the older I keep getting, more continues to unfold and be revealed. I also it can be kind of scatterbrained and I have a lot of different pursuits. Um, but prior to helping people, I first had to prove that I could be employable. Oh, yes. <laughs> Those days, yes. So I worked at a, you know, a kind of a higher-end workout store for women and was folding yoga pants. Nice. I had a great job and a great time there. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's one of those things you look back on and it's just you kind of look back on it with some fondness. <laughs> It's like almost, learning to show up? Yeah. I just need to prove that, hey, I can show up. I can actually hold a job. And actually get employed was pretty cool and wild, especially when you have such a large gap in your work history. Right, right. I don't know if you can be like, say you're an entrepreneur when you're really dealing drugs. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> or consumer. Uh-huh. <laughs> Great consumer. Uh-huh. Um, um, but I, even before getting sober, my major in college was human and social development um, with a minor in psychology. And I was drawn to that track because it talked about the practical application of theory. So how do I take this and actually apply it to real lives and use this to actually help people, improve the world? And I always wanted to leave the world a little, little better than I found it, um, which is tough to do when you're literally in a tornado of self-destruction. And killing yourself. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah. yeah. How can you help other people when you can't help yourself, right? <laughs> Maybe you knew something back then, deep down. I believe that, actually. I do believe that. Possibly. But I do think, too, like a lot of people that have their own healing want to help heal other people mm -hmm. because it's almost like some of us want to do our work vicariously. Mm -hmm. um, but what I like to share now is as still a younger person in recovery is that there is hope on the other side and that there is a life worth fighting for in recovery. I wouldn't be here if that wasn't true. And so that is kind of the message that I want to share to people. Because I remember when I was using, I literally, I felt so hopeless. I couldn't fathom anything else. But then when the fear of staying the same was greater than my fear of change is when I finally was like, okay, I'm going to face this unknown and I'm going to see what the world is like without drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. which might sound silly to normal people because, you know, we get praise for doing what a lot of people are able to do just on the regular. Right, right. But for me, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and has become the foundation for everything I've accomplished since. But... This feeling that I've found that I didn't think was possible is part of my purpose in terms of wanting to share that with people who can't see it quite yet. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love working with the teens is I, I want to show them that you know life can still be good as a young person in recovery or you know 
changing the way they think about their relationship to substances or you know looking for different coping mechanisms and that's part of you know why we opened this treatment center in Knoxville is you know I got sober in Southern California there's so much great treatment out here mm-hmm. and you know my recovery landed me in a field where I can use my passion for helping others my talents as of you know relating to other people to share this message and then create something that hopefully people will be attracted to and my work in treatment has shown me so much mm-hmm. and creating this new program is I really want to expand access to care in parts of the country that you know are a little lesser served mm-hmm. and because I believe that everybody deserves a chance Mm -hmm. to get this feeling that I didn't think was possible and I just want to expand the accessibility to do so. Um, So we opened a substance abuse and mental health outpatient and that also comprises of a teen outpatient in Knoxville, Tennessee and it's been such a wonderful process. Also very, very stressful. A very (laughs) stressful. And how are you doing that from California, you're spending a lot of time out there. What's and you've obviously got a great team. Yes, so I have a great group of partners, a great clinical team there. I'm out there about once a month. Um, but again, like we spoke about, is I'm not doing this alone. Uh-huh. I have a lot of people that I can rely on and trust, which is something that I continue to challenge and practice. My uh, is a practice of mine. You know, growing up in high school, I was always the kid in the group projects that just wanted to do everything and do it right, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> quote unquote. Right. Um, and so being able to rely on a team, learning to face different challenges, but ultimately to help people improve their lives is so special. And I think it's such a privilege, as I'm sure you would agree, to witness, you know, the miracle of people getting their lives back and seeing that light turn on in their eyes. There's absolutely nothing like it. As much heartache and tragedy as there can be working in this field with you know the loss of loved ones and or people that choose not to get help quite yet Mm -hmm. um i just keep holding on and for those people that are willing and hope Mm -hmm. that if they're not willing now they will become willing later Mm -hmm. because i don't believe anybody's worth giving up on I, oh, I love that and you know when you say like people were telling you when you were in treatment that you know if you relapse you know i i wish so much and i'm sure you do too i'm gonna put words in your mouth that people would stop saying that and that people would stop saying that relapse is a part of this thing because in my heart i don't believe that mm-hmm. i just don't it, it because it's not you know it doesn't have to be it, it's it's just not you know um but there is that key word that you mentioned there's willingness right and um that's the key you know um so i I do wish that people would just take that out of there because i feel like that just adds this like oh well i can come back i can come back and and unfortunately you know uh, i think you know this epidemic shows you know that that's not always the case and uh and you know it's 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 really sad i agree and i love the fact that 
I think it's said mostly so that people that are or have relapsed don't feel too much shame in coming back, but it doesn't need to be part of the story. I just remember I didn't have a plan B. This was my plan A, and that was all the only plan I had, and mm -hmm. I was going to stick to it. At least initially, though, I wasn't as set in this path. Mm -hmm. At first, I was in treatment, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to use ecstasy again when I get out. I think, you know, <laughs> being sober will reset my brain chemistry. Things will be fun again, right? right. But right. I'll stay away from the stuff that's problematic. Right. And it took me until being in treatment that I realized I was a drug addict. I didn't realize I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But then I realized if you're waking up and drinking a bottle of wine that's on the on your bed table. I don't think that's what most people do. No, no, and and I always and you know and unfortunately that word has a lot of stigma and mm -hmm. and just alcoholic in general. And you know I, I tell people all the time I didn't become an alcoholic until I went to treatment. You know, and 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 you know I, that's when it happened. And and then I started slowly understanding what the definition of alcoholism mm -hmm. was and that it's an umbrella word and that I have the ism and I can I can have too much of anything give me shopping food no food boys no boy any of it, mm -hmm. it all of it I'm a consumer and um and so I'm always trying to fill that something and it'll rear its ugly head and can you identify with that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Cross addiction. And I don't think anybody goes into treatment or AA being fully convinced that they're an alcoholic or fully convinced that they're going to spend the rest of their lives this way. Right. And I wasn't either. Um, but the longer I stayed in the rooms of AA and in the program, I could see that this ism you speak of mm -hmm. was more applicable to the rest of my life than just the substances, which is mm -hmm. clearly identifiable. And uh, being a young person in recovery, I was like, okay, I, I don't know if I'm gonna stick with this, but I'm doing this right now and I'm gonna give it my best shot. And so I told myself I was gonna give myself to a year. Yep, I love that and, attitude. And see how I felt, cause I, you know. That's realistic. I thought so too, and I wanted to give it a real and a fair shot. Cause I mean, even a few months in, I was still having trouble sleeping, insomnia like chills, those, uh, the pause, the post-acute withdrawal mm -hmm. symptoms. And I wanted to know, okay, what is it really like to be free from these substances? Because mm -hmm. it still had its grip on me. I was still having using dreams in early recovery. But that stuff doesn't even plague me anymore. It's, it's so crazy. Um, I don't miss it. But I wanted to give myself that real shot. But I remember I kind of chose to stick on this path prior to reaching that year mark. Because I remember... I started laughing again, mm -hmm. and that was the one thing that really hit home to me, especially that first belly laugh that I had in treatment. It almost made me sad because it felt so foreign to me after such a long time, and I was like, wow, I have been missing out on this for such a long time, even though I was self-medicating, putting all these different substances in my system to try to feel that. Mm -hmm. And like a good addict, you know, I want to chase a good feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I'd gotten a little taste of that. And I was like, okay, there might be something to this. There might be something worth sticking around for. And that first little bout of laughter gave me hope mm -hmm. that a greater and better life was possible. And not saying I'm always laughing, but it was enough for me to be like, okay, 
let's give this a real try. And I remember that laughter and that feeling and that joy and that connectedness persisted um, through that first year. And I remember prior to that mark, I was like, okay, I like this. I like my life as it is. I didn't fully love myself yet then. Mm -hmm. I was still learning to. But I was willing to kind of continue down this path and explore what else it had to offer me. And that included like healthy friendships, traveling, festivals, working. My first big girl job. I remember when I got my first business card and my first company credit card, I couldn't believe it. I was like, who's going to trust me with this? And I remember I took it so serious. I worked my tail off. And it led to so many more opportunities, which led me to you, which ultimately like led me to creating this new place that hopefully will you know, allow a lot more people to access and find recovery. But you know, when you're detoxing in your little, your little bed with all your meds, you're not thinking that this is what your future has in store. You're just trying to get through. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm grateful we could have this conversation is because I couldn't conceptualize what I have now and I wanna share about it so that people that can't conceptualize it can maybe see it and hear it and maybe see that, you know, eventually it could be possible. The ripple, <laughs> the ripple. Right. Okay, so where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, well, I hope that my treatment facility will expand. I hope we'll have a great reputation or continue to. I want to go to Burning Man. <laughs> I love it. Years. I love it. Um, and then I have a few different travel uh, places I want to travel on my list, like including Bali and Thailand and who knows, maybe live out of the country at some point. That might be beyond the five years. Maybe on property, which seems <laughs> crazy at this stage. and You the, never know. I know. But it's interesting. All these dreams felt so out of reach previously. Mm-hmm. But I'm like a big believer in manifesting. So anything that I truly want that I continue to actively work towards and put my energy into, I know will come true. And so I'm excited for the next five years. <laughs> And I'm grateful that it's not COVID anymore, so I can actually live. Um, knock on wood. <laughs> I know. Knock on wood. It took the last year of my 20s and catapulted me into, you know, this adult <laughs> that I've been putting off for a while. That's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I'm just so honored that you came today. Thank you so much for sharing your truth, your authenticity, your future and where you want, where you were to get here. It's, it's, it's raw, real and hopeful. And, um, I just appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Melissa. You're amazing. Thank you.